0: As we begin, begin this sermon, I have a question for you guys, and anybody can play, whether you are a Christian or not, everybody can play here. Life in the Spirit is blank. Life in the Spirit is blank. So go ahead and take, take a moment to fill in that sentence as uh, somebody makes this building a little bit cooler. <laughs> go ahead and fill that in. Maybe as a couple people make this building a little cooler. Thank you. Life in the spirit is blank. How would you fill that sentence in? Some people, maybe you yourself, maybe you've seen false teachers on television. You know, you might say, you know, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian trying to figure out what this Christianity stuff is all about. You might say, okay, the people on TV, they say life in the spirit, whatever that means, is a life of healing. You might even say that they think life in the Spirit is a life of riches. Maybe some well-meaning Christians might identify life in the Spirit of God as speaking in tongues, for those of you who might be Christians here. And maybe some others might say that life in the Spirit is a life getting lost in the music. To do whatever we want to do when we are worshiping and singing. With so many definitions of what life in the Spirit is, we are helped today to go to our passage, which is in Romans chapter 8. I invite you to turn there with me now. Romans chapter 8 can be found on page 944 if you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you. 944. We are helped in our passage today because the author of this letter to the Roman Christians speaks all about the basics of life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. That's our main topic. It's the title of the sermon here, uh, Life in the Spirit. And our passage again is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11. But I'll go ahead and read from verse 1 to 11 just to give us some uh, context here. Look there as I read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in this book. We've been walking through the book of Romans. We took a little bit of a break and now we are back in Romans and uh, this letter, as we mentioned earlier, is written by the Apostle Paul. He was a man used to start the church in the church age. And here he's writing to Roman Christians, Christians who were in Rome and they were of mixed background, whether it be Jews or non-Jews. They were gathering together uh, here at the church, in the church. For a while during the time of persecution, they were kicked out of Rome, right? The Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome. They were basically exiled. And after years, finally, they started trickling back in. And here it seems to be uh, that they already have. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul explains what the good news of Jesus Christ is. He's writing to these Christians. He had never been to the Church of Rome, and he's enlisting their support as he's going to take the gospel to Spain, where it had not been preached at that time. And that was the ends of the earth, according to uh, what he knew. It was Spain. He knew it had not been preached there, and so he wanted to go there. And then in Romans chapters 5 to 8, which is where we find ourselves today. That's why I'm giving you this brief background here. Romans 5 to 8, Paul explains what the blessings of the gospel are. So if you are a Christian here, you know that these are your blessings because you have believed in the gospel. And today we see that to be saved by God is to live life in the spirit of God. To be saved by God is to live life in the Spirit of God. But again, to set our passage here and help us understand uh, what it's talking about, we need to look at the context, which is why we started in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Last time we were in Romans, we looked at this wonderful gospel blessing. Look there. You definitely want to be following along with your Bible. We're here. The goal here is not only to teach the Bible, but it's also to teach you how to read the Bible. So go ahead and look there at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So wonderful gospel blessing there. No condemnation. And we saw there in verse 2 that we have been set free from sin and judgment and eternal death. Right? That's why there's no more condemnation because God has set us free. Just as we already sang there in and can it be. Verse number 3 there we saw too that there is no condemnation because God did what we could not do. He required perfect righteousness from us according to his law. But of course, we couldn't do that. And so God sent Jesus Christ to fulfill it for us. He does what we could not in the law. And so in Christ Jesus, we see that Christ lives the perfect life that we could not. Jesus Christ dies on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. So he dies where we should have as sinners. And he dies as our substitute. He does what we could not. There's another reason why there's no condemnation for Christians is because God condemned sin in his Son Christ Jesus. He condemned sin in his Son Christ Jesus and he did all of these things, look there in verse four, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf if you're a Christian if you are a Christian, if you have indeed repented of your sin, sins and turned and trusted upon him, he fulfilled The law for all those who walk not according to the flesh, look there in verse 4, but according to the Spirit. There There is no condemnation for those who walk according to the Spirit. Now, if salvation, here's a bit of application, if salvation is for those who walk according to the Spirit, if a life of no condemnation is available to those who walk according to the Spirit, right? I hope you're wondering, what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Well, Paul actually tells us what exactly that is because our passage says that those who have life with God those who have life with God do not face judgment we want to know what it means to walk according to the spirit and Paul explains what this life is point number one if you're taking notes point number one life in the spirit is a life concerned with spiritual things life in the spirit is a life concerned with spiritual things Look there in verse 5. This begins our passage here. He's just continuing to explain what it is to walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Pretty simple. Life in the Spirit is a life concerned with spiritual things. Now let's be clear here. I don't mean mean that life in the Spirit is just a life of spirituality. Like if I go out and worship the sun, that is spirituality and that pleases God. That's not what he's saying. Life in the Spirit is a life concerned with the things of God. That's what spiritual things is here as, as I'm defining it. And the concept is simpler than one might assume. He's basically saying that if you have God's very Spirit to dwell inside of you, then you're going to be concerned with the things of God. You're going to be concerned with the spiritual things. So a basic example of this concept, you know, some of you guys know that recently I went up to Portland uh, to plan for this conference uh, that some that me and others are putting together at together for the gospel. This conference in Louisville. Um, so I went up to Portland, and I don't know what you guys think of uh, of when you when you think of Portland, but when I think of Portland, pretty much the only thing I think of is Nike headquarters. Nike headquarters is in Portland. And having grown up trying to be like Mike, that is Michael Jordan, you know, I was excited to see the facility, to tour the facility. And some of you guys know who got us, uh, me and my friends in there. Um, a former member of this church married a Nike shoe engineer, a basketball shoe engineer. There's only two in all of Nike, by the way, for the basketball section. Jordan has his own brand. Nike has, uh, you know, these two. And, and some of you guys know one of the shoe engineers. Anyways, he got us this tour into the facility, right? And we're going... We're going on this tour, and the first room that they have a stop in, you know, they're they're talking about sort of the mindset, the worldview of Nike. And they even use the word, basically, that says this is where the, quote, gospel of Nike began. They actually use the word gospel as they're displaying, you know, this artwork and the worldview of Nike. There's a whole Nike worldview up at Nike headquarters. And the employees, at least some of them, embrace it. The company wants the employees to embrace the Nike worldview and actually spread it. Life at Nike is concerned with Nike things. There is the Nike gospel, the best shoe company in the world. There is the Nike paraphernalia that our tour guides were wearing. We have the best, most advanced shoes in the world with the most advanced technology. I was even jokingly rebuked for wearing my Adidas shoes up there multiple times I was told to check out this Nike shoe that is the Ultra Boost Adidas Killer. Uh, and then I was told on multiple occasions to do something about my Adidas shoes. Right? They have embraced the Nike life. They are concerned with Nike things. Instance, it's, it is it as simple as that. Except Christianity is not a company that goes around and peddles a product for a profit. The gospel of Jesus Christ is free. And it is the only gospel that saves. Not only one's feet, but one's soul. Life in the Spirit of God is a life concerned with spiritual things. In relation to the Spirit, God had promised to pour out His Spirit to help, to assist, and to save wayward sinners because He knew that that was the only way that sinners could be saved and restored to God Almighty. That's why we read the Isaiah passage today. In Isaiah... There is the prophecies of God promising to do something new. And if we were to go on to read the book of uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we see that this something new comes about through the Messiah that is the chosen one and the Messiah and his spirit. And God promises to pour out his spirit upon his people, which eventually is fulfilled as Jesus rose from the dead, ascended at the right hand of the Father on high and pours out the spirit. Other passages say something very similar to what goes on in Isaiah. Ezekiel chapter 36, for example. You don't have to go there, but you can write it down. Look it up later. Ezekiel chapter 36 and then Jeremiah chapter 31. God promises there the new covenant. We heard about the covenant of peace, eternal peace, that Roger read for us earlier. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah 31, this covenant is called the new covenant through the blood. This new covenant happens as God pours out His Spirit upon His people and He causes us to obey His ways, to take out our stony hearts and He gives us heart of flesh where we therefore walk in His ways. We love God. Our desires are changed. And in so doing, He would rescue us and change all of our desires and even change all of our loves if you are His child. And so His people would eventually, right there, they're, they're going to come to love the Holy God and all of His stuff. Everywhere that holiness can be found. We begin to love those things. Through the Messiah and the Spirit of God, God therefore brings about renewal and peace with Him and peace with one another. And friends, if you are a Christian here and you're looking around like, this has already taken place here in the church. No doubt we are not perfect, so we still struggle with sin. But because of the Spirit, because God has already brought about renewal, because of the new covenant fulfilled in the blood of Jesus Christ, as Jesus poured out His Spirit, we therefore are already renewed. And so we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. It's already taken place here. This renewal has already begun. And we see that without doubt in the rest of Romans chapter 8 that there is still renewal to come. But, friends, it has already already begun. It has already taken place in some senses. This language here in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11, you read of the Spirit, right, and how it changes us. And the Spirit even dwells in us. It gives us this new hope. It gives us new, these new desires. And this language of dwelling, you see there, this language of dwelling is used there in verse 9 and verse 11. The Spirit dwells in you. That means we Christians are indwelt by the Spirit of God. This life in the Spirit is what Paul is talking about. And, and what he has been talking about for previous chap, in previous chapters that we've seen. Christians walk according to the Spirit. They are of the Spirit. They live now in the new way of the Spirit. Life in the spirit is concerned with spiritual things as in the things of God. And all Christians fundamentally live in this life. All Christians live in this life. It's worth noting that some have interpreted this passage to say that here, who he's talking about, he's talking about really only the mature Christian believer. Only the mature Christian believer walks according to the spirit And those who live according to the flesh, they are the carnal Christians. So you have, as some people think, you have the carnal Christian, those still saved, but really carnal, living in sin. And then you have the mature Christian. And then so they look at Romans chapter 8, this passage here, and they say what Paul is really doing is he's encouraging carnal Christians to live in the mature Christian way, that is life in the spirit. And friends, that's actually wrong. Why might they come to these conclusions and sort of promote this type of teaching of carnal Christianity? They look at verse 5 and they say there, For those who live according to the flesh, read carnal Christian, less mature Christian, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, think mature Christian, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. Right? So the carnal Christian, they are fleshly. The mature Christian, they are more spiritual. But again, that's not what he's talking about. That is wrong. As Christians, no doubt we still battle with the flesh. We see that in Scripture. But in this context, those who are of the flesh, those who live according to the flesh, they are non-Christians. To live according to the flesh is to live as a slave to sin. 620. In that environment, 621, it's where sin exercises its powers over an individual, and it leads to bearing fruit unto death. As a non-Christian. Chapter 5, right? We're just reviewing here what Paul's saying and and it's just reflected in chapter 8. Chapter 5, living according to the flesh is to be in Adam. The reason why he says they're in Adam, it's because we walk in the same ways as Adam walked. As the one who first sinned against God in terms of human. It is the non-Christian who does not have the Spirit. That's the contrast going on here. And we see this contrast going back. I mean, even if you were to go home later on today and just read through chapter eight—sorry, uh, chapter 7, chapter 8, you see this life in the flesh versus life in the Spirit. Life in the flesh, life in the Spirit. So what he's contrasting here is the non-Christian life in the flesh and the Christian life in the Spirit. To be a Christian is to no longer be a slave to sin, but instead we are willing slaves to God. That's what he said in Romans chapter 6. We are ruled not by our old self. Why is that? Because it was, past tense, crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6. To be a Christian is to no longer live in Adam, but to have Christ as our trailblazer. We are now in Christ if you are a genuine Christian, no matter what you struggle with. You are in Christ, not in Adam. So conclusion here, if you are a Christian and you've truly repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, you are someone who submits your whole entire life and aims to do that to Jesus Christ, then you, friends, as it says in chapter 7, verse 6, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. Again, we still wrestle with sin. Paul says elsewhere that we need to keep in step with the Spirit. He says that in Galatians. But every Christian is, by definition, according to our being of the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. So know that what Paul contrasts here is the non-Christian and the Christian, not the carnal Christian and the mature Christian. Once again, all Christians by nature serve the new way of the Spirit because we have the Spirit dwelling in us. So going back to our main point here, life in the Spirit is a life concerned with the things of God. Life in the Spirit is a life concerned with the things of God. Speaking of Nike, I got like this ridiculous Gatorade bottle. Let me take a water break. Verse <laughs> 5, look there. It says that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They, they, they live a life concerned with the things of God. That's a telltale sign of a tr- of true Christians, right? It's a telltale sign of true Christianity at a fundamental level. God's concerns become your concerns. Christ's concerns become your concerns. Did you hear that in the passage? The spirit is also the what what is it called? Spirit of God. The spirit is also called the spirit of Christ. Just go and skim there from 9 to 11 and you see all this. The spirit is called the spirit of God. The spirit is called the spirit of Christ. So that live life in the Spirit, it just means that God's concerns become your concerns. Christ's concerns become our concerns. And no doubt, you know, as the, the, the church was believing, defending the doctrine of the Trinity, no doubt they're going back to passages even like this to understand, well, who is the Spirit and how is He distinct? And how are they one in relation to the persons of the Godhead? My point, though, is that the things of the Spirit are the very things of God. Now, Christian. Know that there are some Christians today who think of the Spirit as if the Spirit functions separately from the ways and wills of, the God, of God the Father and Christ the Son. The Spirit is off here just doing whatever it wants to do. But Scripture teaches us that we should never think of the Spirit like that. Never! We see that not only in the language, right? The Spirit is the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. But even in redemptive history... You see here that we should always think of the spirit of God in connection with the Father and in connection with the Son. So according to John, right, the Gospel of John, you read a John read, if you were to read John 14, 15, 16, 17, it is the God the Father and Christ the Son, who sends out the Spirit. to initiate the church age. The Spirit is sent out by God the Father, Christ the Son. Christ and the Father sends out the Spirit. Well, to do what? It is to gather the church. In John 16, it is to lead the church into the words of Christ specifically. It is to empower Christ's church with the gifts of Christ. We see that in the book of Ephesians. We see, too, that the Spirit is sent out in order to build the church up with the gifts of Christ and to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. It is to see the sinners convicted of their sin and saved. And also in John 16, all to the glory of God and Christ. So when you think about the Spirit, never disconnect the Spirit from the Father and the Son, but you see them together. They work in unison. They have the same will. They act with the same goal in redemptive history. So so going back to the intro, right? Think back to the intro. What is life in the Spirit like? Friends, to reduce the Spirit or to reduce life in the Spirit to, what do you believe about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit? It shouldn't be done, at least to reduce it. It is a good question to think about, a good thing, a good topic to investigate according to scripture, but you never want to reduce it to only that. I used to ask, right? I used to ask, was the singing in the spirit meaning? Did I have freedom? Did the church culture give freedom for me to do whatever I wanted, even if I wanted to cartwheel down the aisle? Was there freedom to do that? And that was life in the spirit. But, but, friends, after I go, after you know, I became um, just a better student of the Bible. I realized actually that my concern, you know, in terms in relation to this freedom to do whatever I wanted as we sing, that's actually not a concern that the authors of Scripture have. Freedom, spontaneity in worship, is not a concern that the New Testament has. Actually, life in the Spirit is something so much more Godward. So to reduce it down to freedom or what one desires to do in worship, as in singing, I mean, we just can't do that. And, and, and you know, as, and, as kind of an aside, but still related, you know, I used, to, I used to do this, right? But you see how much of an error that is, right? If I'm going to identify freedom to do what I personally want to in worship as life in the spirit, or as the ultimate thing is life in the spirit, I mean, you, how do you even take that and just sort of apply it across the world? Like are persecuted Christians who are meeting in their houses right now or yesterday or tomorrow, right? And being watched by the government who have to whisper and hum. Are they not living life in the Spirit? Of course they're living life in the Spirit. Their worship is still worship in the Spirit. And then you just think about across the ages and the different ways in which Christians have worshipped, even just take the last 2,000 years. You know, if we're going to sing a chant and mean it with our hearts, and just repeat it over and over and over again in the truths of the Bible, is that not life in the Spirit? Or if I read a prayer and it's written out word for word, as I often do, not all of my prayers, like my, my pastoral prayer was not, but if I read a prayer of praise and everything is written out word for word, is that not life in the Spirit? Oh, well, certainly it's life in the Spirit because when I read the Bible to you, right, we can still learn because it is Spirit-inspired. And if I'm just going to read it to you for encouragement, that is in the Spirit. So we don't want to reduce life in the spirit to such things like what do you believe about the way a church does worship or what do you believe about the miraculous gifts of the spirit. Again, I'm not saying that those are unimportant questions to answer. Those are. Those are important questions to answer. After all, let's say the gifts of the spirit are given to accomplish God's plan of salvation history. Right? So we want to answer we want to ask those questions. We want to answer those questions. So they are not unimportant questions or topics. But those issues are actually not the issues Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 8. I think that's instructive. To live life according to the Spirit means that there has been a fundamental change in our beings that has been brought about by the very Spirit of God, God's Spirit, Christ's Spirit, such that we, you Christian, have been made right with God and now are living for His glory. You have been brought into Christ's kingdom where we honor God, You know that based on Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, we formerly did not. But now God's things have become our things. We honor God. We give thanks to God. We are wed to Christ, as it says in the book of Romans. We seek to know him. We seek to love him. We have peace with him. And we're supposed to go back to his throne of grace to get more and more grace. Romans also says... We are to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth where we want to see other people come to know Jesus Christ and enjoy this same reconciliation, restoration, justification, and rightness with God. God's things, His mission becomes ours. His purposes become ours. His will becomes our, ours. God forbid that living in the Spirit would be reduced down to doing what I want to do when the church sings. It's about God's concerns becoming your concerns. Now, friends, if God's concerns are increasingly becoming your concerns, that is a sign that you are a Christian, that you are of the spirit. Now, if you don't find your things aligning with God's things, right? If you don't find a spark for the things of God, you don't care to know him. You have no desire for Him and His Word. You have no desire to submit yourself to Him. You don't desire to be holy as He is holy. You don't desire your friends and your neighbors to come to know Christ. These are signs that you are not of the Spirit. You could be, even though you claim to know Christ, you could be like those in Jesus' time who claimed God but who did not really know God. You know what Jesus says to those folks? He says to them in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Interesting here, he's talking about doing the will of the Father. The emphasis isn't necessarily doing the will, right? Although that is important. The emphasis is, I'm going to make God's will my will. God's will, his concerns, have actually become my concerns such that I actually want to do them. And so works is a reflection of true faith. Friend, if you call yourself a Christian and you find your desires for God lacking, the hard-hitting news is that you could be still of the flesh, bearing fruit unto death and judgment, a non-Christian, regardless of what you claim. Remember here, some of these folks who believe that they could be saved by works, they still claim to Jesus, but yet they did not know Jesus truly. Friends, if that's you, let me encourage you, let's talk. Let's talk. Talk to me. Talk to a mature Christian that you trust and that knows, loves you, and let's talk about it, right? We want to help other people come to inspect their lives. We want other people to come to know what it means to be a true Christian. We want people to know what it means to live for God, what it means to live under God, and what it means to live like God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good thing about talking to us is that we can help you look at your own life and examine your own life, examine the fruit that God says you are to bear, examine the fruit that you are bearing, whether it is fruit unto life or fruit unto death. That's one of the wonderful beauties of the church, isn't it? The local church is, as one has called it, a fruit inspection co-op where Christians come together to worship Jesus Christ. And part of that involves one another... Asking one another, inviting one another to inspect your fruit, to keep you accountable, to encourage us by the word, which also involves rebuking, as the case requires, so that we might go on and bear more fruit. Friends, come and talk to us. And, the, and some of you guys know, some of you, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily speaking to those who might have a sensitive conscience and who regularly doubt, and that's a struggle, right? That person... I have regularly told some of you guys, look, you should just trust us and trust your church family. You are a Christian. We see your life. We see God's concerns becoming more of your concerns. Yes, you do struggle with certain things, but by all accounts, and so far as we can tell, it seems really obvious you are a Christian, right? Sometimes you might hear that, but I have actually had to tell other people. I've had to tell people at seminary and just straight up asking like, okay, you're telling me about these things that you do on the weekend. Are you really a Christian? I've had these kinds of conversations. And thankfully, some of them have even heard them as useful, and then they come to become Christians. So, friends, let's talk. The best thing we can do is just tell you the truth in love and help guide you and show you what it means to actually live life in the Spirit of God. Point number one, recap. Life in the Spirit is a life concerned with spiritual things, the things of God. As Paul continues on, we come to point number two. Life in the Spirit is defined by life and peace. This is in verse 6. Life in the Spirit is defined by life and peace. Look there, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Here Paul Paul further explains what setting the mind on the Spirit is. Seems Seems very straightforward. He says that for further explanation. But what is important to note again if it hasn't been made clear already, is that life in the Spirit is first and foremost a life in relationship with God. It is a life in relationship with God. Both descriptions, life and peace, life and peace, describe not only the Christian's experience in this life, like, hey, I experience peace because I know God, um, like a peaceful life, uh, but the Christian's relationship with God, with God, Here, this is the focus here, life with God, eternal life with God, peace with God. The word life here refers to eternal life, that is salvation, life with God, already mentioned in 622. And then look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says to Christians, since we have been justified, that is declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There you see what affects our peace. It is righteous standing in what Christ has accomplished, being righteous in Christ. So again, relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is that that brings eternal life and peace or reconciliation with God himself. This is just review, right? It's just the heart of the gospel. We had sinned. We had rebelled against God. God in his loving kindness reaches out to rebellious sinners, offering us a way back to him. Even though we deserve judgment, eventually hell, he says, Hey, I want to help you. And so he extends his hand in his son, his eternal son. Jesus Christ takes on flesh, lives a perfect life of righteousness, dies on the cross in unrighteous sinner's death so that all those who turn to him would be declared righteous in him. They would be justified. Just as there are reasons for why life in the spirit is life and peace, so there are reasons why life in the flesh, is one of death. Look there in verse 7. Again, look there at your Bible. This is how we understand, this is how we grow. It's because life in the flesh is a life against God. He says, therefore, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law or basically rule there. It does not submit. Now, if you're visiting with us, right, you know yourself not to be a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity, I recognize that that does not necessarily sound nice. The Bible says that you, you do not do something, right? Anytime someone tells me I do not do something as a rebuke, you know, it's kind of, it feels almost like unkind. Well, friends, this is what the Bible says. The best thing, once again, that we can do is try and convey the truth in love. But this idea of hostility makes sense, doesn't it, if you think about it? If there is only one God if there is only one Lord, if there is only one king and only one creator, to insist that there are others beside him or to reject him or to strive to define a universe where he is not. How how else do you define that but by hostility or being at a state of enmity against God? Imagine for a second If the people you created, right, just try and place yourself in the creator's position. Imagine for a second if the people that you created X'd you out of your universe. That's a rejection of you, no matter whether your creation acknowledges it or not. It is a rejection of you. So you see the offense? Since the fall of man, God's created people have been trying so hard to envision, to conceptualize to, to theorize of a universe where the creator is not and what makes it all the worse is that man exes out god as he looks at the very things that god extends as an invitation to behold his glory what makes it all the worse right god invites man to behold him in his very creation as the creation goes to the ends of the earth displays his glory god invites man to look to even study to even theorize but then to be amazed and to give god glory but sinful man whose heart does not honor god or give thanks to him paul says in the book of romans indeed he looks Indeed, this man studies. Indeed, this man theorizes about God's creation, maybe even black holes, how they might operate, perhaps the universe, the physics that upholds it, even. Or maybe we look at the human body, right? Think about scientific, right? Looking at the human body, we we are amazed, maybe, at its processes, and so we look, we study, we theorize, or maybe even more simply, we just look at relationships. We look at what goes on inside of us. I mean, you know, there is something strange about the power of love. We look, we study, we theorize. How awesome is it? And that's it. What God does, He creates all these things and He invites people to look, to study, to theorize, and be amazed, to, to thank God for everything that God has done, to give him the glory, not to say there is no place for God in this. You see why Paul says that the mindset on the flesh then is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's rule. But friends, Paul goes on and even more offensively, perhaps, he says not only does it not submit to God, he says it cannot submit to God. It cannot submit to God. Remember, here it says those of the flesh are sold under sin, where sin exercises a very real dominion and power over people in the flesh. They cannot submit to God's rule. So here, think of inability. When Paul says they cannot submit, what he's referring to is a moral inability. Definitely write this down if you're taking note. It is a moral inability. He is not saying that people in general, non-Christians, are physically unable, right? Paul, think of Paul, for example, great example. Before Paul was a Christian, he was a Pharisee, right? He was a Jewish person who rejected Jesus. He was a teacher of God's law, and he boasted in how good he was morally. But actually, or sorry, he boasted in the fact that physically, He could even follow the law. But morally, when it came to his moral heart under God, he was corrupt. He was corrupt. He could not obey God in terms of morals. He could physically, right? Did he get circumcised? Yes. Did he obey? Did he give? Yes, certainly he did. Pharisees gave, but their hearts were so far from God. Physically, he could. Morally, he could not. It's always good to remember in this kind of context as we're talking about what one can do or what one, what, what one cannot do. It's good to remember that the heart that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot submit to God because actually it wants not. It cannot because it wants not. It cannot because it wants not. Remember that. And this makes sense, too, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian. The mindset on the flesh has no intention of giving up any real square inch of real estate to God, the ruler. And so if you are tempted, perhaps, to use this as an excuse to not follow God, to continue to reject God, as in saying, oh, look, the Bible says it cannot, I cannot, so I'm just not going to, and I can't anyways, right? That, you, you just don't have that latitude here in Scripture. And we can just go back, right, just go back and think, well, okay, how far am I willing to submit myself to God? And you will see that you cannot because you want not. For example, right, just think about this. How much are you willing to go to submit to God? How much of your life are you willing to submit to God? Are you willing right now to submit your finances to God? The Bible says that Christians are to give as an act of worship cheerfully, joyfully. Are you willing to give up some of that? even if that means reducing your standard of living. It's what God calls of us. It's a whole lot of other things, but I'm using that as an example. Now, how about this? If you're visiting, you know, non-Christian, how about your sex life? Are you willing to give up an inch of your sex life and sexuality to God, the King, who says, yes, sex inside of marriage is a great and wonderful thing. Go ahead and enjoy it. But sex outside of marriage is sin. Are you ready to give ready to give that up freely, wholeheartedly? How about this? Are you ready to give up what you do on Saturday night? As maybe you pursue pleasure, drunkenness. Are you willing to give up your friends that you might go and do those things with? Right. If you know your heart well enough, you know, your heart wanting to pull back some of that real estate that Christ demands of his followers. We could go on here. How about this? If you're considering being a Christian, God says that we are not to do anything that causes another brother or sister to stumble because what we are to aim for is one another's security in Jesus Christ, right? So let's just talk about, uh, yeah, you can think about any, any number of things that people might think like, okay, here's an example. Um, before, I used to think, uh, I was very much into fixing up cars, um, in kind of a ghetto ghetto way, not really fixing up, just making it look like it goes faster, making it louder, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, what I associated with those things was speeding tickets, and I had gotten ten of them uh, in the course of I don't even know how many years. But uh, and I even got my license revoked for a period of time, suspended. Um, and then not only did I associate it with tickets and stuff like that, I also associated it with hanging out late. I associated it with my non-Christian friends. I associated it with, with other illegal activity that they were involved in. Um, right? So then when I started growing as a Christian, it was hard for me to look at that kind of lifestyle, as in you know uh, uh, the, car, the, car modif- the car modifiers, that kind of life, as not sinful. Now, as I looked over at that life, was it wrong for me to judge them? Yes, it was wrong. Is it possible to love fixing up cars and still love Jesus? Yes, it is. But in that moment, as a young Christian, it was hard for me to understand that. But the Bible says that, look, if you are doing something that even causes your brother or sister to stumble, God says, give it up, right? Am I willing, are you willing to give up some of that real estate, your freedoms, to see other people secure in Christ? To see, to see other people not worried about, about what is sin or not sin? This is a real demand upon us. Are you willing to forgive as Christ forgives, even as you harbor that bitterness? Are you willing to let your hopes and your longings be changed? Are you willing to change what you wear? You know, let's say if you are a man and you know that perhaps women are attracted to a certain something, or if you're a woman and you know that men are attracted to a certain something, are you willing to give that up so even men and women can come gather here together and not be distracted so that we can worship Jesus? Are you willing to give up all of that real estate for Christ? This is just making God's concerns our concerns. The conclusion there in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And friends, that is why it leads to death and judgment. Life in the flesh does not, cannot please God. The Christian life, though, is a life of life and peace with God. All this talk about setting the mind on this and that, you know. You know, he's talking about if you set your mind on this, if you set your mind on that. Friends, do not think, if, you, if you're tempted to think that Christians are the smarter folks who set their mind on a something, or that we are the moral ones, and therefore we earn ourselves eternal life. Friends, that is not how one pleases God. That is not how one gets peace with God. Christians are those who see their need to be reconciled to God. And turn to Christ for salvation. Peace with Christ doesn't come through the power of the intellect or moral superiority. That is not possible. So if you hear that, does not submit to God, cannot submit to God, don't think, oh, you Christians are saying that if we just think well enough or act well enough, that therefore we have peace with God. No, that's not. That's not what we're saying. Actually, all of Romans is just saying we need God to save us from ourselves. And so Christians are those who have peace with God because we see our need to be saved and we turn to Jesus Christ. If you are a rebel at heart, right? I'm sure you get this. If you are a rebel at heart against your parents who want your heart, you don't get peace with them by getting straight A's or getting the right job or even giving them money. Friends, you need to be reconciled to God in heart. Christians are are those who see first their need for salvation and reconciliation to God, the creator, and those who turn to Christ for forgiveness that God so freely offers in his son. That's the only thing that can remove this hostility between man and God. This is the beauty of the grace that's found in the gospel. Look over to chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. This is just kind of like a repeat, a wonderful summary of the gospel. He says there, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. While we were still hostile to God. Christ died for us. He goes on since therefore we have now been justified. That is declared righteous, even though we are unrighteous. Even he says, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That's life and peace with God. Even though we are enemies with God, hostile to God, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, Paul doesn't bring all of this stuff about can't do, can't please God, doesn't please God, to make you feel bad about yourself in and of yourself. He brings us up so that once again, we might see our absolute need to be saved by the spirit of God, our sovereign God. We might see our need to be given new hearts by His Spirit, new hearts that are made alive to the things of God, which are the very best things. Friends, if you realize this eternal life and reconciliation, this peace, friends, if you realize these things, this all can be yours, life and peace with God. If you turn from your sins and believe on Him for salvation, friends, give back to Him, The primary position that he alone deserves in your life. He alone is worthy of all glory and honor and thanks. And though you have crossed him. Though you have crossed him out of your life for so long. Know that in Christ God invites you to life with him nevertheless. If you would only turn from your sins and believe on him for salvation. You will be justified, forgiven of your sin, adopted into his family where you enjoy all of the blessings that God has to give, eternal heavenly blessings. If you have any questions of what compelled us as Christians to turn from our sins and to trust in Christ, let me encourage you to talk to us, right? You should be interested, I hope you're interested, in finding out what exactly made us turn from our sins and believe on Jesus Christ. Talk to us. Point number one, life in the Spirit is a life concerned with spiritual things. Point number two, life in the Spirit is life and peace. Point number three, life in the Spirit is a life belonging to God. Life in the Spirit is a life of belonging to God. Look there in verses 9 to 11. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here, actually, Paul speaks directly to the Christian. He wants them to be absolutely sure and confident, assured of their salvation, all because of God's grace in their life through the power of the spirit and also in Christ. He's talking about you, Christian. He's supposed You he, hear he wants to give you confidence. Now, some of you guys might be wondering, you notice these ifs in verse 9. It's if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, if Christ dwells in you. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus, etc. And you might think, oh, man, of course, those of you who have sensitive consciences, you might think, oh, this if, like, gosh, like, am I really supposed to have confidence? Because I don't know if this condition has happened in my life. And you read it almost like you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, if in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, verse tw- 10, but if Christ dwells in you, although the body is dead because of the sin, uh, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, etc. that's actually not the way Paul intends us to read that. In the context of five through eight, it is all about confidence in the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all about our inability and how God has rescued us in Christ and Christ's spirit. And so we are to see these conditions as fulfilled, done, won. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong in him. But if the spirit of but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness and righteousness. He goes on and on. This is confidence-inducing here. Supposed to, to read this and see it as fulfilled conditions, fulfilled conditions, the things that have already taken place. We're supposed to review God's grace in our life and come to praise our sovereign and gracious God. Confidence is all throughout these verses here. Confidence that comes in being a Christian who, by definition, is indwelt by the spirit of god here in these verses he speaks about being indwelt by the spirit of god in different ways and the aim once again is confidence first ways in which we find confidence first first because christians belong to god christians belong to god you hear that in the language there in verse 9 anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him why is that why should that produce confidence in you christian being indwelt by the Spirit of God, belonging to Christ, because you either belong to the Spirit or you belong to the realm of sin and death. The realm of sin and death just leads to judgment and then eternal death, eternal hell. Life in the Spirit, though, God has rescued the individual, possessed him, and has now set him free in the Spirit of grace. That's why there's confidence here. We're not of the realm of the Spirit, but we, sorry, we're not of the realm of sin, but instead we belong to God. And if we belong to God through faith in Christ, we are given life, eternal life, a second reason for confidence. We are given life, that is eternal life. Look there in 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's basically saying, look, our physical bodies will die, Christian. But if Christ is in you, we are secured eternal life in the future. Remember, we were all headed one way. Christ, though, God, though, in his sovereign grace, rescued us, set us free in Christ, given us his spirit, and now we look at the future, we look at it towards eternal life. We have life in Christ because we are credited the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The spirit is life because of the principles of righteousness. And then verse 11 further explains this guarantee of eternal life, right? The third reason for confidence, because God will do it. God will do it. Read 11 there. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see there the momentum there in the verse? The spirit of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, look there at 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. God the Father already raised Christ from the dead by the power of the Spirit. So, of course, He's going to raise all those who are in Christ who possess the Spirit of God. They, too, will have life in their mortal bodies. Wonderful, wonderful promise here. We have confidence because God says He will do it. He guarantees resurrection life. Just as the Father raised Christ from the dead in the power of the Spirit, So that very same God will raise His people through Christ's Spirit who dwells in us. No wonder the Spirit is called a down payment or a guarantee of the inheritance that God gives us in Christ, as it says in Ephesians. Of course, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because we are no longer His enemies. But instead, we are invited to His table, adopted into His family, made heirs with Christ, where we cry out, Abba, father and we can know in fact that he will hear us and preserve us until the end in christ in his spirit we are one with christ we are his and he is ours instead of condemnation facing judgment in the flesh you christian face the promise of resurrection life all because of god's love for you and his face is towards you not as his enemy but as his child as he is your father To conclude here, the basics of life in the Spirit. So much grander than the mere conversation of spiritual gifts. Life in the Spirit is a life where God's concerns become our concerns, where God grants us life and peace, eternal life and reconciliation with Him, and where God possesses us and makes us His own. Praise God. And so we look at these things, we behold them, and give Jesus Christ all the glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your kindness in giving us the spirit of Christ, your very own spirit. That has changed our hearts, written the law upon them, even changed our desires. Lord, we thank you so much for the confidence that we can have being your children. We pray, Lord, that as we even continue to reflect on these truths, Lord, that we would give you all the glory that in your kindness and in your grace you have saved us while we were still hostile against you. While we were your enemies. Lord, we pray that in fact we would live so confidently and boldly to the praise of your glory, walking in holiness as you are holy. In your name we pray. Amen.